there, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 1. It's kind of hard for me to say Philippians almost after so many months, actually over two years of standing up here and say, turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. But we're not going very far away. All you have to do is just turn one page over and we get into Philippians. Philippians is a great book for us to study because this is a book about encouragement. Lots of times we get down in our Christian lives and sometimes we don't even know what to do next and we wonder what's happening to us. And this is a really good place for us to go to be lifted out of discouragement. Sooner or later, every Christian will find discouragement. Or maybe I could better say that discouragement will find you. It happens to all of us. And the best thing to do is just be prepared when it comes and know how you can get yourself out of it. You know, we have a tendency to be out of sort with people, out of sort with family and friends and with employers. We'll never feel at peace with one another until we learn to have peace with God. And we'll never be content until we have full peace with God. And we won't be content until we understand fully that God is in complete control of everything that happens in our lives. Now, Paul was a person who reached a place of contentment. In fact, we find in chapter 4 of Philippians that he said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. And we wonder, how do you ever reach a place like that? And that's one of the things that we discover in the book of Philippians. Now, this evening, we're just going to get a little bit of taste of the waters as we uh, talk about the introduction and the salutation to Philippians. This is a great book, a great treatise on Christian living. We're just going to touch a few things today as we, or tonight as we begin the book. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're going to read just two verses. That's Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to meet together tonight. Lord, as we begin Philippians, I just ask you to open up this book to us and help us to understand it better. And may we reach the place that the Apostle Paul did of perfect peace and contentment. We thank you for that, Lord. Bless our lesson tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we began the book tonight. I want to start, first of all, The first thing we need to really understand, number one, is the context of this letter. That's where we're going to begin, the context of the book of Philippians. And remember here that we are talking about a letter. When the Bible speaks of an epistle, or you hear the word epistle being used, that means a formal letter. And so we have books like, or we call them books, but letters like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's a letter to the church at Galatia and to the Ephesians that we've just studied, Philippians. These are all epistles, and these, of course, are letters that were written by the Apostle Paul uh, to different churches that he had organized throughout his missionary journeys. This particular church of Philippi was started by Paul in the early 60s. I'm not talking about the 1960s now. I'm I'm speaking about much older than that. Back in the about 60 to uh, 62, 64 A.D., somewhere around in there. And that would have been about 28 to 30 years after the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And the circumstances of him writing we find in the fourth chapter of the book. And there it tells us that he was a prisoner in Rome. 
And so, of course, that would mean that he wrote Philippians before uh, he made that appeal to Caesar in Acts chapter 25. Remember, Paul was taken and uh, he appeared before Felix and before Festus. Finally, he made an appeal that he would go to see Caesar. So obviously, being in prison, this is after that particular time. But what makes Philippians such a remarkable book is the tone of the letter. Because here Paul is writing uh, from, a, from an attitude of happiness. And we really wonder, how is it possible for anybody to be happy when they're stuck in a prison? I mean, if anything, if we were in that kind of place, we would feel abandoned by God. But that's not the way that Paul, Paul writes. I mean, he's content. There's contentment in his heart. We find there's not a tone of dejection in this, but perfect peace and fulfillment. And so that's why I say that Philippians is a good place for us to go when we're discouraged, because Paul will reveal some things to us that will help us in those particular times. Now, I don't want you to think that you can pick up the book of Philippians and read it through, read the chapters, and it's just a short book, read the chapters of Philippians, and all of a sudden, you're the happiest person in the world and all problems are gone. It doesn't work that way. There's a way to get to the place that the Apostle Paul was. And it's going to take some unfolding of this entire book for us to discover what that's all about. But let's take a moment here, first of all, to discuss the city of Philippi, the place where Paul went and started this church. Uh, Where was it? What kind of city was it? Well, Philippi is actually a city located in uh, uh, Macedonia. That would be what we call the present modern-day northeastern part of Greece. The most famous thing about the city of Philippi was its gold mines. In fact, that's what attracted Philip II, who was Alexander the Great's father, and he came to Philippi and annexed it into the kingdom at about 356 B.C. During the Roman times, which is, of course, after the Greek Empire, it became a very important city because it was lying on an east-west route across Europe called the Ignatian Way. Perhaps you've heard about that, but that was the place where Rome, the road that Rome would move its armies from the east and the west, and that was their place to to go across Greece. And so it became a a very important city because there was a lot of trade that was done along uh, this route. Uh, Philippi was known as a miniature of Rome. And, of course, it was a very uh, important outpost for Rome. It was a very bustling city. As I just mentioned, there were many merchants that were there. These are the kinds of cities that Paul uh, visited on his missionary journeys. He, he was always looking for places where, that were busy like this and were on these important routes because when people would come through those cities and they would be converted to the cause of Christ, then the gospel would be spread throughout the Roman Empire as these people traveled from one place to another. One thing that we don't read about in the Scriptures about Philippi is the kind of idolatry that you found in other places like Athens and Ephesus and even Rome itself. But even though the Bible doesn't tell us that those kinds of things were taking place there, you can rest assured that Philippi was much like all of the other places of the Roman Empire. In fact, calling it a miniature of Rome, that ought to be enough to tell us right there that they probably experienced the very same things, the, the wickedness and the idolatry and everything that was going on in all of the other cities. So Philippi was of an important city, and in fact, it became an important city for Christians after Paul established a church there. In the excavations of Philippi, they found many, many different Christian churches. And so that would tell us that uh, these original converts that Paul reached there in the city of Philippi, that they uh, spread the gospel around their area, and so Philippi became a very important place for Christians in the early centuries. 
Now, that would bring us then, as we, as we think about uh, people that were converted to Christ, the second thing we would think about are the converts at Philippi. And these were some very special people because this is the first place on the continent of Europe that the gospel was preached. The first Christian church was on the continent of Europe was organized in Philippi, and that was on Paul's second missionary journey. And if you remember the story, Paul came into Philippi. His custom in all the different places that he went was usually that he would go into the synagogues first. First, he would look for Jews, and he would preach to people in synagogues. But when he came to Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue there. There wasn't a large Jewish community, and so he couldn't go into the synagogue and preach. But instead, he found a group of women that had gathered at a river nearby, and they were holding devotions, and there Paul made the first convert on the continent of Europe. Who who knows who that was? Lydia, exactly right. Lydia was the first convert to the gospel of Christ. Now, we read about her in Acts chapter 16. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, please. We're going to spend a little bit of time tonight in Acts chapter 16, these, uh, these first few minutes, talking about some of these special converts that were made in the city of Philippi. You remember that the Bible calls Lydia a seller of purple, and she was a, a merchant woman, so that meant that she was probably pretty well off. And Paul won her to the Lord, and and I have really always loved the story of Lydia's conversion. In Lydia's conversion, we find the clearest example in all of the Scriptures of what it takes for a person to receive the gospel of Christ. Look in verse number 14 in Acts 16. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. And listen to this next part. Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now, Lydia was a woman who worshipped God. As I said, Paul found her by the riverside and with a group of women holding devotions. She worshipped God as the Jews worshipped, but she really didn't understand who God was or, or have a right relationship with the Lord. And it wasn't until Paul preached to her the gospel of Christ that the Bible says her heart was opened by God and she listened to what Paul had to say and she received Christ as our Savior. Now, Lydia really stands out against the silliness of preachers who think that salvation is a matter of clever persuasion and all kinds of cheap invitation tricks that you use in order to get people saved. Back when we were studying this in the book of Acts, uh, perhaps you may remember that I talked about a famous fundamentalist preacher. He's dead now, and so he knows better than, than this. But he taught his young preacher boys in college, he said, you, uh, taught them to be manipulative and how they gave invitations. And he said, he said, don't come down to the end of your sermon and say, in conclusion, or my final point is. He said, when you do that, the sinner digs in his heels, he grips the back of the pew, he sets himself against receiving Christ, and you've lost him at that point. That's what he advised his preacher boys. Perhaps he didn't really understand that every single person in the world is against the gospel of Christ. They always will be until God opens up their heart, until the Holy Spirit convicts them. And then when the Holy Spirit convicts, he comes in to remove the hostility that we have against the gospel of Christ. And he's the one that enables us to believe. Now, people are taught today... And really, folks, I think it's the biggest fallacy that we find in our churches today. People are taught that they are in control of their own hearts. You are not in control of your heart, and you never have been. Now, at first, Satan is in control of your heart. 
And what did the Scriptures say? It says he's blinded your eyes against the gospel of Christ, lest you should believe the gospel and be saved. So Satan at first is in control of your heart. But what happens when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit comes to convict, he dispatches Satan. He moves Satan out of the way. Now, Satan has kept the door closed. You can't receive the gospel. But then the Holy Spirit comes, and it's his job to open up the door so you can believe. He enables you to receive. And this is exactly what happened with Lydia. It says right here that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul, and this was immediately after God opened up her heart. So Lydia, we find, is the first convert in Europe. And it wasn't Paul's tricks that got her to believe. God's well capable of taking care of belief himself. And you won't be saved until God takes control of your heart. Well, then from the conversion of Lydia, the story goes on in Acts 16. And it talks about a young girl uh, who, who was possessed with an evil spirit of divination. That means that this young girl uh, seemed to have the ability to tell the future. And that ability had become a source of income for her handlers. Now, it's kind of interesting, I think, if you look into the background of this and look at the term that's used to describe her. The term is pneuma pathona, which means spirit of divination. Now, look at Acts chapter 16, verse 16. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Spirit of divination is pneuma pathona. Now, pneuma means breath. That's the same word from which we get spirit. It means breath. Pathona is the same word from which we get python. Now, according to Greek mythology, the Greek god Apollo was supposed to have slain a great serpent or the great dragon python. The Greeks believed that the python stake had special mystical abilities and had something to do with telling the future. And so when the Greek god Apollo killed this python, then he received these special prophetic powers. And so Apollo became known as Puthios Apollos, which means python Apollo. So here you have this young girl that's possessed by a demon. There's an evil spirit in her, and it appeared to give her the ability to predict the future. Now, one of the things that she did, she kept following Paul and Silas around day after day after day, and she said something very interesting. In verse number 17, it says that she kept saying as she followed them, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Well, that looks very helpful, doesn't it? I mean, here's a girl. She's well-known by everybody in the city, obviously. I mean, they've been making money off her because she could tell the future or so they thought. And she follows Paul and Silas around every single day and says, Listen to these fellows. These are men who can show us the way of salvation. Looks like a good thing, doesn't it? But really, you have to look a little bit closer at this because we really can't, really can't tell what's actually going on here very well in the King James Version. The problem here is that there's actually great deception that's taking place. Satan is the one who influenced her to do this. Now, the error that we find here is, in fact, alive and well right here in Roner Park today, right here in America, being taught every single day is the very same error that this woman was saying. Now, it says, she says, that they show us the way of salvation. It looks good. But the problem is the the that you see there, the way of salvation is not actually in the Greek. It's not there at all. 
And what she was actually saying, these men show us a way of salvation. Now, that's just like the Jehovah Witness translates John 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, according to the Jehovah Witness, a God. Satan loves for you to believe in a way of salvation. Satan loves to deceive people and think, well, there are multiple ways that you can get saved. So what these, this girl was actually saying, there is, here's one of the ways that you can get saved. Listen to them, that's one of the ways. And of course, what would that do? That detracts from Jesus Christ alone. And so the JWs, they love, they don't care. I mean, they, they, they don't care they deceive you in saying that Christ or Jesus is a God. But they don't want you to know that he is the God. They don't want you to know he is Jehovah God and that he is the only way of salvation. And that's exactly what this girl is doing. She's saying, there is a way, not the way. You see, Paul had to deal with the very same stuff that we have to deal with today. Uh, So Paul got sick and tired of that. And what he did, he just turned around and he cast the demon out of this girl. He used the name of God. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ. And folks, that's the name of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, he said, you need to come out of her. And so that demon had no chance, he had no choice, and he was cast out of this young girl. Well, that caused a problem for these fellows that were using her uh, and her special powers that she was supposed to have because that was their meal ticket. She was making money for them. So now the fortune teller's gone, the, the one who has the tarot cards and the crystal balls and the palm reader. They don't have her anymore. So poor old Benny Hinn and Oral Roberts and Robert Tilton, they lost their, their means of making money here. Well, what they did then, they took Paul and Silas and they, they took them to the magistrates and they beat them. And they thought that was the end of it. Let's beat them up and throw them in jail and that's the end of those guys. But what they did was they actually led into one of the greatest stories that we have in the Bible. One of the most famous stories. Because there you have Paul and Silas sitting in a Philippian jail, held fast in stocks, their feet are bound, their arms are bound, their hands are bound, their backs are beaten and bloody. And what does the Bible say about them? It says, at midnight they sang praises to God. Let's take a look at that. Look in verse number 26. where this question is asked and answered in such a direct manner. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I've got a question for you in that. You see any sacraments there? You see anything they asked him to do? I mean, is there are there any prayers? I don't see anything like that. Do you see where they said, well, you need to do penance? Get down on your hands and knees and crawl or, or do something to absolve your sins. That's not in here. They didn't say anything about baptism. Go get baptized to be saved. They didn't say finger your rosary beads and that will help you. You're not going to find that in this. 
It's simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's all it took in Paul's day. And folks, that is all it takes today. Simple faith in Jesus. But today we have great edifices, huge churches that are built on the backs of people who have done everything that they can to get to heaven except this one thing. Simply trust Jesus. Folks, I'm thankful I'm a Baptist. I'm glad God revealed this to me that all I need to do is just believe the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't trust what I've done. I trust what Jesus did for me. As the song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now that's the context of the letter. Wonderful conversions that were made there. And so Paul writes to this Philippian church. Of course, he's already gone from there now. He's in prison. He's writing to these people, to this church that he founded with that, with that nucleus of converts. And they had become a thriving church in the city of Philippi. Now let's go on. We're going to look at the first two verses now. Secondly, we're going to look at the consorts of the letter. Verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you remember, because it hasn't been too long ago, that we ended the book of Ephesians with the apostle of grace. That's what we call Paul, the apostle of grace. And here we are starting Philippians, and we find Paul speaking about grace. Paul never strays very far away from the grace of God. Even when he's in bonds, even when he's in prison, he still sees the grace of God. And really to understand this, you have to, to know exactly what he's saying and what he means by this greeting when he says to them, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace and peace, those were customary greetings in Paul's day. I mean, just anybody might say grace to you. And certainly we, we know that they said peace. Even today, the Jews still use shalom as a greeting. But when Paul uses grace and peace, he's always using it in the light of what Jesus Christ had done for him. Paul doesn't say grace and peace like, oh, how you doing? How's the weather? He's got a purpose in doing this, and he's always reflecting back on what Christ had done for him. Now, the Jews of Paul's day, they would say grace, and the Romans would say peace, but they didn't understand it, not like Paul did. And you notice here that Paul says, or it doesn't say peace and grace, he says grace and peace. And really, that's, that's the order of salvation. You don't get the blessing of peace unless you have the blessing of grace. Grace always comes first. Now, grace to the Apostle Paul always related to his justification that he had in Christ. Every time that it came from his lips, it was a reminder of him of what he was before. He was a sinner, lost and condemned. But God had done a wonderful work in his soul. And God had transformed him and translated him into the kingdom of light. And so when he says grace, he's relating that and thinking about the justification that he has in Christ. But then also when he says peace... He's thinking about it as well. He's also thinking about justification. Grace is the beginning of it, and peace is the outflowing of it. Now, peace, as the Romans used it, will never be achieved unless you first have peace with God. And so whenever you see Paul saying grace and peace, even if it's in the salutation of a letter, if it's in the closing of a letter, it has special meaning. He never uses it flippantly. It's not a flippant choice of words. Well, let's go on here. Let's look at the consorts. 
Maybe you don't recognize the word, but that simply means the associations that Paul had. And, and the associations are with Timothy and these Philippian Christians. So he starts out here, and he, and he talks about he and Timothy as being the servants of Christ. The servants of Christ. Now, that's a word that Paul often used. If you do much studying of the Bible, you'll come across it very often. And this is the word doulos. It doesn't just mean a slave. It means a bondservant. Now, I want you to write down very quickly three ways that a person could become a slave in the Roman Empire. First, you could become a slave by birth. Secondly, a slave by defeat. And thirdly, a slave by debt. Now, number one here, you could become a slave by birth. Now, if you were born of parents who were slaves, then you would also be a slave. I mean, automatically you're a slave. The master owns the slave, and anyone that's born into that family, he also owns that person as well. So you could be born as a slave. Secondly, you become a slave by defeat. And what I mean by that is the Roman armies were always conquering different lands, and what they would do many times is they would take the soldiers of foreign armies, and sometimes even the leaders, and they would make them their slaves. So you could become a slave by defeat. But then thirdly, you could become a slave by debt. And that is if you owed money that you couldn't pay back, then you could sell yourself into slavery or be sold into slavery to pay your debts. Sometimes even people would sell their children as slaves in order to pay off their debts. Each of those types is a spiritual metaphor for the way that Jesus meets every kind of slavery. Now first of all, he frees people who are born in sin. Every person in this world is a slave to sin. You've been born into sin. And the only way that you're going to be set free from that type of slavery, from your natural birth, is for Jesus to save you out of it. He's the only one that can set you free from that kind of slavery. Then also, every one of us has been defeated by sin. Satan and sin rules over us. And when Paul talks about in other places, like in Romans, talking about being servants of sin, he means under the slavery and the tyranny of sin that's over us. But then also, we are slaves by debt. In Romans 6.23, the scripture says, The wages of sin is death. Every sin that you commit is piling up a debt that you cannot pay. Now, the Bible says the only way that that debt is going to be met is by spiritual death. And the worst part about it is that all of eternity is not sufficient time to pay off this spiritual debt and this debt that you owe. So Jesus then is the answer to all of this. There's several ways that you could get out of slavery, but folks, there's only one way that you can get out of the slavery that we're talking about, and that is that Jesus Christ must buy you out of slavery. And the way that he did that was by his own blood that he shed on the cross. You must be bought out of it. Now that begs a question then. If Paul is a believer in Jesus Christ, if he's been set free from sin, why does he call himself a slave? Well, why is he still calling himself that? And not only that, why is he a willing slave? Well, the answer to that question we find actually in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 21 if you would. And this is part of the law that was given to Moses concerning slavery. And there is a special stipulation in the law that says that a person who is set free could actually remain a slave if he chose to do so. You're looking at Exodus chapter 21, and this is uh, beginning in verse number 1 is where we want to start. 
Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. Now there you have in verse number 5 the picture of a man who loves the master. He loves what the master's done for him. The master has provided for him. And the joy of this slave is to consider or, or to continue to serve that master out of love. To serve him forever. Now the master is the one that's provided for his life. And folks, that is exactly the way that we come to Christ. We don't serve him because we're forced to do it. We serve Christ when you know him out of love and gratitude. Christ has given us everything that pertains to life and joy and happiness. And so we serve him because we love him. So this is how Paul looks at himself. He calls himself a bond servant, a willing, grateful servant of Christ. And so there he is in prison, and his greatest joy, even though he's in a prison cell, is to serve God in whatever capacity God should so choose to use him. That's how he found contentment, one of the, one of the ways. Now what about the other associates? Well, the people at Philippi addresses, and he calls them the saints in Christ. Now we've been over the usage of the word saints in the Bible many, many times, so I know that you're familiar with that. When we say saints and when the Bible uses saints, it's not talking about somebody who performed a miracle. Now they've been dead for years, and now the Roman Catholic Church comes along and says they're saints. And when the Roman Catholics proclaim a person a saint, that means that that person can be prayed to. Now they're an intercessor between them and God. Folks, that's pure foolishness. There's no scriptural basis whatsoever for any of that. And not only is there no basis for it, it is absolutely blasphemous because it's an assault upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's saying that a person could actually do what Christ himself alone could do on the cross of Calvary. That makes it blasphemous. They're not only blasphemous, it's also presumptuous to think that a group of 80 or 90 year old men in red bathrobes and pointed hats could, could tell God what to do in heaven and make saints out of people. I want you to listen for just a minute. I found this as I was reading about this subject. And uh, this is a part of this ridiculous process by which a saint is canonized. Now, this comes after the recommendation for the person. It's, it's after all the investigations are done. Once the diocesan investigation is finished, the acts and documentation are passed on to the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. The public copy used for further work is put together here. The postulator, resident in Rome, follows the preparation of the Presidio or summary of the documentation that proves the heroic exercise of virtue under the direction of a relator of the congregation. The Presidio undergoes an examination, theological, by nine theologians who give their vote. If the majority of the theologians are in favor, the cause is passed on for examination by cardinals and bishops who are members of the congregation. They hold meetings twice a month. 
If their judgment is favorable, the prefect of the congregation presents the results of the entire course of the cause to the Holy Father, we know who that is, who gives his approval and authorizes the congregation to draft the relative decree. The public reading and promulgation of the decree follows. Well, hmm. Somewhere buried here in verse number one is this process for making saints. Now, I'm trying my best to find it. If you find it, let me know. But I'll tell you something, it's not in the Bible. There's nothing like that in the Bible at all. Now, notice something else here where where he puts the bishops and the deacons. He starts with the saints. Now, those would be common, ordinary believers in the Philippian church. And uh, he doesn't start with the high and the mighty bishop. Now, the bishop, of course, that means an overseer. That's the same word as the pastor. But Paul doesn't start there. He says, all the saints in Christ Jesus with the bishops and the deacons. So it seems to me that what Paul is saying is that the bishops and the deacons are not on an unlevel playing field here with the rest of the congregation. They're not ruling prelates. They're with the other saints. They work with the saints, and they're not above the saints. Now, there's no warrant in Scripture for a Catholic pope. And, folks, there's not one for a Baptist pope either of any church who thinks he's the the potentate of the church. There's no cause for it. What we find here is that the great Apostle Paul subordinates himself to the church itself. He's under their rule. That He's a servant of Christ just like they are. So if you can find something in the Bible or anywhere else, well, nowhere else you need to go, but if you can find it in the Bible that there's supposed to be some kind of hierarchy that's, that's built up for a ruling class of preachers or for popes and cardinals and bishops and right reverends, left reverends and, and blue jays and, and uh, robins and everything, I don't know. It's not, it's not in the Bible. What we are and what every preacher is, every preacher of the gospel, every Sunday school teacher, every deacon, everybody in this church, we are servants among servants. And that's all that we are. And that's how Paul starts Philippians. He starts out attaining his greatest satisfaction as a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. Prominence and position, Paul's not interested in that and neither should any of us be. Now here's your last statement for your listening sheet tonight. The key to my life of joy and contentment equals Christ and others above me. And isn't that exactly what we studied this past Sunday morning? Last couple of times in Corinthians, it's every time preferring somebody above yourself. And that's how Paul, another way that he reached contentment. So Paul is content in prison because he said, For to me to live is Christ To live is Christ and to die is gain. Nothing matters but Jesus Christ. We get that into our heads. Contentment's going to follow very shortly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to be together tonight to discuss your word. We're already looking forward to great things that we learn from the book of Philippians. And Lord, help us, if we are discouraged, to reach out, get out of that discouragement, to be encouraged by the Word of God and by the life of Paul. Let him show us how we can reach peace and contentment. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.